Gua sobrok. Ai. <laughs> There's not a rule that you have to use the two subs. He's he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. And hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the third sub podcast presented by Macy Sports. I'm your co host, Alexander Gonge Ruzik, joined as always by Sammy Ronan. Boy, do we have a jam packed episode 107 for us! A golden edition of episode 107, I may add, as we are diving into all things Canadian women's national team after a phenomenal Olympic tournament. They're undefeated. They're the champions. They're the gold medalists. Canada is on top of the soccer world. It is such a good feeling. And it's it's one, again, I continue to say it out loud. It feels so strange to me. But before we dive into all that, Sam, how's it going this week? It's going well. Uh, yes. You know, just still on that little bit of emotional high. I think I'll echo what you said, where because it happened so quickly, it came together so quickly, it was... A tournament that was largely played in the middle of the night here at least on the west coast it it all feels a little surreal it it wasn't something that the women's national team was expecting this quickly and it makes it really special i think also the way they they were able to to win the tournament beating the u.s you know harrowing penalties made it really special but now that we've had a little bit of time to think about it, we're going to dive into some of the big picture stuff behind this victory. What does it mean for the program? What does it mean for women's soccer in Canada more broadly? Can they can they capitalize on some of this momentum that Priestman talked about it this morning? You know, how it can help grow the game here in Canada. And then just kind of we're obviously going to get into tactics, get into individual players looking forward to 2023. How does this team grow and continue to build? So it, wide-ranging discussion on, on the women's game in Canada, the national team, uh, their successes at the, at the Olympic tournament as well as looking forward. So uh, what, a, what a great place to be in for the Canadian women's game. I, I'm very excited about what the future holds. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into it. I have to say it out loud because I continue to say it out loud and it still hasn't sunk in. Canada has won a gold medal in soccer they did so looking fully convincing. They did the job that was asked of them. It still just feels wild. It feels like it was a blur. Probably it helps that those games all at five in the morning kind of gave it a bit of a, you know, fever dream feel about it. You just kind of, you're waking up in the middle of the night, especially for us on the West coast, some of those game times like 5 a.m. for the final. Certainly you, you do be, feel a bit envious for those on the East Coast. Got to watch the final at 8 a.m. with some eggs and some some bacon, some coffee. We were over here 5 a.m. fever dreaming basically. Did Canada win? Is this all just an illusion of the mind? But it just feels so yeah wild to type out, wild to to say out loud, wild to to see printed on on walls and yeah, what a journey it was really. I mean, it, it, again, it, it would have been nice to I guess have it in a normal Olympic year with fans, but just the journey itself was so grinding, just the extra year having to prepare, have a new coach go through all of that. And then to come up on top, I mean, that's everything you could have dreamt of at the start of the year. I mean, we'll go into it as we, we talk, like what the expectations were heading into this and where this kind of compares, but it just, it still feels so wild that this is how everything ended up crumbling down. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the word journey because I think there's there's two ways you can go with that. In one sense, it was incredibly harrowing with having to go through COVID, go through the coaching change, go through a lot of uncertainty, not playing matches. And in another sense, there's been barely any journey at all because they played a couple She Believes Cup games, they played a couple exhibition matches, then boom, you're straight into the Olympics you go undefeated at the Olympics and now you're gold medal champions, right? Like it all, it all happened really quick. And I want to say that back, you know, early in the year when we were kind of breaking down, okay, what's the outlook for the summer and, and the women's team, we were saying, well, you want to do well at the Olympics, but really with a new head coach, with a new generation of young players, you're looking at the 2023 world cup and they've, they've now sort of skipped that step. They've gone ahead and put themselves on the top pedestal now they're a top team, a team to be knocked off heading into that tournament. So, yeah, in one sense, it's been a long road. And in another sense, things happen really quickly. And I'll maybe get into later when we actually discuss kind of how it all went down. You know, the fact that I think this was a really good example of, you know, the the magic that happens in tournament football is a lot of close matches, you know, not necessarily, certainly you talk about the final against Sweden, it wasn't always convincing. There were great moments, but you know, if, if they want to be a contender in the 2023 World Cup, which obviously they do, they're still building to do. But I think, yeah, what a what an incredible journey. It, it kind of happened so fast. I don't think we really had a lot of time to process it. I think that maybe for people that just drop in on the national team, it was like, oh, this is this is terrific and kind of a you know, a continuation of what happened at Olympics Pass, but there have been some considerable lows um, in, in recent years for the national team, you know, outside major tournaments and just stuff happening behind the scenes. So to to see under a new head coach things move so quickly was was surprising, but a, but a pleasant one. And we can talk about, you know, the player that sealed it for Canada as well. That's, you know, and Julia Grosso, someone who really wasn't getting any playing time earlier this year, and now all of a sudden she's she's there on the biggest stage. So a lot of things moved very very fast during this tournament, but it's a it's a great kickstart to what is hopefully the next real quality era of Canadian women's national team football. Yeah, and I mean to start one area that was certainly at least I've felt this way for a while. There have been debates on this. This Canadian team has good players. Even last year or the years before where they weren't playing as well as they could, it wasn't. It, it certainly didn't feel like a lack of talent. There were some explainable things such as, it, oh, it's it an aging. It felt like general disorganization and lack of continuity. That was, to me, like the prevailing theme throughout all of it. Yeah, or aging out a, an old generation and moving on. Th- those sort of things made sense, right? But you, you just felt like this team was too good to perform as it, as it had, it felt like this team could be, you know, maybe doesn't, ha- again, this isn't something you're going to do all the time. Win heck there's even there, there's teams feel like, look at that U S roster for them. Anything, obviously anything, but winning is a failure for them. But even if they're not going to win every tournament, it gives you an idea of how deep the field is and it's only getting deeper. So it's not to say this is the expectation now to win gold. Obviously it is. It, it, it was finally proof that Canada could get over that, that barrier that had, you know, that invisible wall that had always stopped them right in the semifinals. They'd hit a wall and they'd lose. And 
but it always felt like it wasn't for a lack of talent, especially in, in recent years, that World Cup where you'd go in and they looked uninspiring. They barely scraped out of their group stages. They lost 1-0 to Sweden in a game that wasn't really good from either side, and they, they just couldn't find a way to distinguish themselves. It felt like they were a team rudderless, a team without an identity. It felt like they just had good players, and how they would do in tournaments would be purely how those players played. It never felt like okay, this was going to be a team win. This was going to be, oh, a huge game from from Kadisha Buchanan, a huge game from Christine Sinclair, Janine Becky, or, you know, just basically an individual reliance. And this team, obviously, they had the talented pieces to do that. But now under head coach Bev Priestman, there's an identity. I mean, it, you know, again, people can talk about, yeah, they, they didn't score a single open play goal in the knockout stages, but when you don't concede any open play goals, or at least you concede one open play goal, sorry, in the knockout stages against three really good sides. I mean, that's that's how you're going to win championships. Team, There's a reason why they say goals win games, defense wins championships. Because if you're defending like that, you have an identity, you're fighting for one another, you're, you're dealing with all sorts of adversity where, heck, in the final, you go down a goal and to come back in a final against one of the best, probably the Based on how Sweden was playing, I would be saying they were playing like the best team in the world. Uh, and to go down 1-0 against them in a final, it finally feels like this Canadian team has identity. They've got a team spirit. They've got a cohesiveness, a, together, a togetherness. And it felt like that hadn't been there for a while. It, it had been there before, I think, under John Herdman. You look at that 2012 team. For them, they, those that team was true underdogs. They were kind of – obviously, you have Christine Sinclair, but they kind of had that underdog feel. You win a bronze medal – it's a big deal. But then now it kind of felt like, okay, this team's won bronze medals. They, they're ready for more, but were they ever going to hit that frontier or were they going to get lapped? A year ago, it felt like they're getting lapped. And now it feels like, okay, they're back in the race. They're back kicking again. And that's a nice feeling to have. Yeah. Things have, things have come, you know, there's from 2012 up until now, it's been a, it's been quite the harrowing journey and there's just kind of that, that black hole in the middle under Heiner Muller, right? Where, where things never really found, you know, found their form or found like stable ground. It was just constant lack of comfort, turmoil. And I think your point about like going down one nil to Sweden, who I think for my money was the best team in the tournament, just in terms of like overall quality play Canada, they, they made it, count when it mattered and that's that's what they hand out the gold medal for but just in terms of like attractive football and creating chances all those sorts of things Sweden was was quality all tournament so the fact that Canada was able to go down in that you know a huge match and a huge stage something that a lot of these players have been you know thinking about their entire careers and there was no sense of panic there there was no no you know shrinking at the moment there was no questioning whether they were ready for the moment it just kind of was like we're just gonna plow on and, and i don't know it felt like you could just sense in the body language you could sense in the way they were carrying themselves that there was there was no hesitation there and i i think that's really impressive and that has to be a testament to what bev priestman's been able to come in and do like I, to change kind of the culture the feeling within the team that quickly and to you know, only have so much time with these players to actually build on that and kind of change the change the structure of the squad. I'm incredibly impressed because you know we were talking about it 
that she believes cup and and you know there's a couple matches against brazil that were that were pretty ugly it was like oh this is going to take a little bit of time we we can't set the expectations too high they can't really score from open play they they look a little disorganized defensively but it's like it, it completely changed leading into the olympics and they even built as the olympics went on so I can't say enough good things about Bev Priestman uh, to be a fly on the wall and, and kind of figure out what she's been able to do behind the scenes. I'd be very interested because not only tactically, which Alex, maybe you want to get into, but just as also like a leader of women out there, she seems to be doing a, a phenomenal job. And I think the final going down one nil was like the ultimate example of that. Yeah. I mean, just Priestman, what's been impressive about her. It's not as, as if she hasn't, taken an inherently different roster it wasn't as if there was wholesale roster changes or you know players being pushed to the wayside new blood being brought in this was pretty much mostly the group that went to to the 2019 world cup just just getting more out of what they had basically just like little details here and there i mean even someone like vanessa gilles who to be fair only had one cap when priestman came into charge you know has i think eight or nine now she was also in the fold back then, so it wasn't as if Canada was wasn't fully aware of what was what they had. But it's just Priestman has taken certain parts of this team and just and gotten so much out of them. For me, I think just looking at a few examples, you start with someone like Vanessa Gilles. I think she's the poster, you know, the the just the the, the perfect example of that. I mean, you have Shalina Zadorsky, Tottenham captain, played very well in the NWSL before a rock for Canada. You've got Kadisha Buchanan, one of the top defenders in the world, playing regularly for Lyon. She's your rock. So you, 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 most coaches, there's no reasons to change that. But here comes Gilles. This just, you know, you, you watch her play. She's just, a, 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 I guess, she, you know, the, the, the one thing I, someone said, it's so true. She has a magnet on her head for how she just attracts you know, the all sorts of long balls, crosses, everything just ends up on her head. She's got a very, I'm trying to look for the right word. She's got a very rambunctious style. You just know, you watch her and you notice her. I mean, most coaches would have been, okay, let's just stick with Zadorsky and Buchanan. Gilles a bit, you know, maybe a bit wild, a bit reckless for my liking. Let's just go with what's safe, what's good. Well, Priestman, after starting the tournament with Zadorsky Buchanan, for the biggest game, Brazil, after having seen Gilles do really well against Great Britain, to bring her in and just throw her in as a starter and then run with her for the rest of the way. That's a stroke of genius. And it was the sort of aggressive moves we don't see often from Canadian coaches. We're kind of used to, okay, let's just go with what's working. Again, not to say it's interesting to hear because actually today Priestman had an availability and she was saying, because someone asked, obviously, what was it like making a decision like that, dropping a veteran, someone who's captain the team in Zadorsky for Zill. And she's like, it wasn't a decision she liked to make, but now that will only push Zadorsky to be better. So it could have long-term ramifications, but just to make a bold move like that, for me, that kind of just, it gives you an idea of what Priestman's about. I think you even look in the final to bring on an, a 20 year old Julia Grosso, who again, she'd, she'd impressed all tournament long. That's not to say she didn't deserve the opportunity, but almost would feel like if most Canadian coaches would get to the final, they'd stick with, okay, let's go with the veterans, maybe bring in someone like Sophie Schmidt, who didn't even dress in that game, just to give you an idea how how things are really transitioning. Two years ago, it was a, a locked-on starter. Instead, Priestman, half, you know, halfway through the biggest game in Canadian soccer history, really, with no better way to put it, to bring on a 20-year-old, 
you know just to trust her like that it was so surprising and and then there's just so many moves like that i think of someone like quinn going from center back under heiner muller to a standout midfielder a lock in my roster uh, in terms of a starting roster if canada was to play their best roster to tomorrow just changes like that across the board really shows what what Priestman was able to do and so bold just there, there's countless ones subbing off Christine Sinclair in a major final who would have ever thought that would be a possibility but Sinclair's legs were gone Priestman wanted to put some fresh legs they're just countless examples and I just love that fearlessness that sort of just not being afraid to make decisions and if they don't pan out you wear it but that sort of boldness is almost what Canada's lacking. Again, when you have the talent, you have all this and that, it was just someone like Priestman who could, who could be fearless, who could transmit that to the players. And I feel like that made a huge difference. Yeah. Just that managing mentality. You can, you can manage to manage the squad and that would be to keep in the veterans to, to make the safe decisions, to not mess up the match. Or then you, you know, you manage to go out and try to, win a title, win a championship, win a gold medal. And that's what it felt like all those moves were, right? And you look at, I mean, Gilles and Grosso, two of the absolute standouts and and hugely pleasant surprises of the tournament, right? Those were both bold moves that paid off in spades for the Canadians. And yeah, I like the I, I would go with like swashbuckling for the for the Gilles style, you know. Yeah, it's, just... it's that high event center back that you it you either absolutely love or sometimes it can turn out disastrously. But luckily for Canada in this tournament and the way she'd been playing, it, it was a real a real pleasure to watch. And yeah, I just I still can't quite get over. You know, I, I was kind of worried just from a Whitecaps homer perspective that Grosso might not even make the Olympic squad. Like that was a early in the year, a genuine concern. And to to have her come on, you know, barely midway through the, the 90 minutes in in a major final. And then obviously the penalty at the end. Just, uh, yeah, in, incredible turnaround the last six months or so. But again, just there must have been conversations there between Priestman and Grosso where she was ready that if that moment came, hey, you know, if we call your name, you got to be ready to go. And to, to have that kind of message sent across and to have every player on the roster seemingly bought in, whether their role was reduced, whether their role was growing, it, it didn't seem like there was that lack of communication that I feel happened a lot prior to Priestman coming in where players didn't know or were unhappy with where they stood uh it, it it feels like that's gone and hopefully that's something that can continue and as Priestman said on the call this morning you know hopefully it pushes everyone to keep upping their level and and Canada can get even better for 2023 yeah that's it it's all about you know raising the quality raising the standard and just getting the most out of the players and even just going to, to some of the the tactics I mean or even just the lo- roster choices sorry we can go to tactics in a bit just some of the tough roster choices she made heading into the tournament. Someone like Grosso, for example, had hardly played all year in the friendlies. She did have a few good cameos to drop someone like Sophie Schmidt, who had gotten her 200th cap. And obviously Schmidt was on the squad. She played a game. She gets a gold medal. Well-deserved for Abbotsford, Sophie Schmidt. So we always got a, and a former white cap here. So we always got a soft spot for, for any of the, the four BC players on the, on the, the Canadian national team uh, here. But uh, to make a decision like that, 
it felt like a year ago that was unfathomable. I mean, there was the whole, I think back to Olympic qualifiers where I think it was Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, and, and I think it would have been Jesse Fleming started together in the midfield and Canada looked slow. They looked aging. And it was something along the lines of, yes, Schmidt and Scott are loyal servants to the national team, but Canada has to drop one of them if they're going to, you know, take a step forward. And it was, it's hard because you don't want to have to be the coach that makes that decision. Well, Priestman, she made that decision. She's like, okay, well, you know, I, I got to drop Schmidt. I want to try, you know, I'm going to try someone like Quinn. I'm going to try, uh, you know, Julia Grosso. It worked out perfectly for, for, uh, for, for Priestman. It, it, it's just little things like that, the, you know, problems that were there before. Okay. You notice you have to make the tough decisions. In fact, okay, I'm going to include someone like Grosso in my 18 player squad. Cause obviously before the tournament, before we knew it was going to be an expanded roster to 22, she, she originally only had to pick 18 players, which again is so ridiculous, 16 outfielders, two goalkeepers, but for her to be like, okay, well, I trust bringing in someone like, uh, like Evelyn Vienna over, over someone like Sophie Schmidt. I trust bringing in Julia Grosso over, you know, over Sophie Schmidt. And in the end, uh, you know, it was just those sort of bold decisions really paid off down the line. So it, it was, it was nice to see. Again, just that that boldness. But uh, maybe on that note, should we go? Speaking of boldness, maybe should we finally shift to to some of the tactics that helped Canada win this tournament? Well, yeah, I think so. Because Alex, you'd you'd written a number of articles earlier on in the year about you know possible possible shape for the women's team, how to how to get the most out of their players, and there are certainly some some diverging opinions online about you know what was best. And there's some that sat more in the you know get the most out of the veterans camp. How many young players do you integrate? All that stuff, but yeah, I want to quiz you first because you're the you're the tactics master, especially when it comes to the women's team. So, what do you think Priestman got right in this tournament? What was you know what were the master strokes that led to such success for you? I mean, it starts with the defense. I think we saw a return to the Canadian defense we we've known to see. It was interesting during the last well under Heiner Muller, it was a four four two. Under Priestman, it switched back to a four-three-three, but even then, the four-three-three had some 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 moments. But then I think we started to see okay, the four-three-three. Uh, I think in June when they 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 shut out Czech Republic and Brazil in back-to-back games, okay, you start to see the defensive foundation. And then for me, it was to see that adaptation from a four-three-three to a four-three-one-two, or I guess a four-four-two diamond midfield, depending on your perspective. Personally, it looked more like a four-three-one-two. To, to, to me, I think that was perfect because you start with Canada's pillars at the back. I think Zadorsky, Buchanan, Gilles, whichever of the two are, two of the three on the field, Canada's been good, whoever's played. I think there's a reason that if you go all the way back to, to January, the only time they even conceded more than one goal in a game, I think they only did it twice. I think it was uh, Brazil where they had this that, that calamity uh, when they lost 2-0, but just worth noting from that Brazil game, that was one of the only, it was Shalina Zadorsky and I think it was Jade Rose who started that game because Kadisha Buchanan was stuck in COVID protocol. Vanessa Gillen went home after bossing the, the back against the U.S. So worth noting that when two of Buchanan, Zadorsky or Gilles play together, they've only allowed more than one goal once. And that was against the Netherlands in a warm-up friendly, an unofficial friendly where they drew 3-3. An official competition or a friendlies, they haven't allowed more than one goal. So I think just starting with that pairing at the back, going through, you know, Ashley Lawrence at, at whichever fullback, and then choosing between Jade Riviere, Gabrielle Carl, uh, Alicia Chapman, 
that back four for it was a huge foundation. They always, they, they were never too low. They were never too high. They kind of set just a good solid midline. And then what was so important was the midfield three in front of them, just that trio of Scott as the holding mid and then Quinn and Fleming as your two number eights, another flat three. It was really that, that four and the three, they were so compact you couldn't play through the middle against Canada. And I think that's huge because so many teams, they play their best through the midfield. I think Canada was almost like, go down the flanks. I dare you to cross it to the likes of Zadorsky, Buchanan, and Gio, who are so good in the air. And they kind of created almost this funnel. Because the thing with the 4 3 one 2 is it's narrow. It can, it can be dangerously narrow at times. But Canada was like, okay, we're going to have two, a, a solid bank of four, a solid bank of three. Then we're going to ha- kind of have our front three serve as kind of a funnel down the, the flanks and dare teams to cross. And I mean, I guess that had its negative aspects. I think Sweden's goal in the final uh, was from a cross where Canada got too narrow and, and Sweden kind of capitalized on that. But that's why if you look at Canada's games, they rarely gave anything up the middle. And that was huge because so many teams tried it. I think there were a few warts. I won't, uh, you know, you can't deny that. I think Japan, that long ball over the top was, you know, a bit scared to see Canada break broken down that easily through the middle. But from that point on, there was nothing of that, like all tournament long, other than the great Britain own goal, where it was a shot from the middle. Yes, but it was a very fortunate bounce. Canada was giving up next to nothing through the middle. So for me, it started with the defense and that four, that block of four and three, and then the the rest kind of funneling it into the, into wide areas because Canada was just lethal in the middle. Yeah, we don't, we don't have access to the same amount of advanced, you know, analytics and data that we do for, for a lot of the men's stuff, unfortunately. But I think just in terms of, you know, XG chances, and I was reading American Soccer Analysis's um, piece this morning about, you know, the quality of chances and, you know, through balls, progressive passes through the middle. Like, how many of those did Canada give up in dangerous areas all tournament long? You just broke down a couple of the goals there, you know, a long ball, cross from a wide area where, yes, they got a little disorganized, unlucky own goal like i think the xg numbers there would have been pretty flattering for for canada they definitely stifled and as much as as much as that back line was great i think the midfield three just you know hoovered up so much so much of that space so much of that pressure and uh, and worked so well in conjunction with the back line and that's to me the you know the goal scoring didn't necessarily improve a ton from what we saw early in the year but the defense felt completely different. Even if they had a couple, you know, performances early on in the year where they didn't concede a lot, the chances were there for opposing teams. And it just didn't feel like the chances were there that much in this tournament with maybe Sweden, you know, certainly in deep into extra time and around, you know, the 90th minute, just a, a lot of those periods where the game was really tense. Sweden was definitely on the front foot, but the, the structure didn't, break down it didn't fall apart and so while there were some chances it wasn't you know the the crucial errors or the you know the big the big plays that we we had maybe seen before so I I think that was very impressive and I'm with you there and then I also think Sinclair in you know her her adapted role was was huge and you can think of a lot of examples on the men's side of the game where you know an older striker who's who's savvy knows where to be in spaces, knows where to be in pockets, can can make those passes, can work with the strikers. It, it's been something that's worked very successfully, and you know, maybe the it allows someone like Sinclair, who's obviously got the 
the mind for the game and the quality to stay on a bit longer because she's not having to doggedly press the entire match or just, you know, take that heavy work rate. And so I think the way you're able to, you know, get some younger players with more crucial roles, but also keep Sinclair being an important part of the structure of the team, that was really well handled by Priestman. Yeah, and just kind of shifting over to the offensive tactics, I think defensively only other notes I'd say is Sinclair. I thought she was surprisingly, you know, I think in that that fall, that little deeper role, since she wasn't pressing as aggressively up the top, and I think when you're pressing as a front player, you, you waste a lot of needless energy. That's, it's just work rate. It's just, you know, big engine, big motor, chase, 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 which does obviously doesn't fit Sinclair at this point. Yeah, and it's just, even if it does fit her, because she did have moments where she can, it's just not worth it, because that, that just that sort of, especially when you have someone like Michelle Prince, who is very mobile, very fast. She knows how to close down spaces. Janine Becky, Deanne Rose. You've got other players who can fill that that role. Evelyn Vienne, Jordan Hoytema, etc. But for me, yeah, just Sinclair, how she'd sit in these kind of this defensive pocket and then she'd come alive when the, she'd have a chance to make some tackles. And again, it's too bad the, the stats were so limited because I can think of a handful of chances where she just closed down players and made such nice tackles where it was all intelligence. It wasn't her just being faster or, 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 you know, muscling someone off the ball. She was just in the right area. So I think defensively having Sinclair is kind of a, a shield helps. And as I kind of mentioned in a bit, what I like about this four through one too, is that there's a bit of flexibility Going forward, I think, for example, uh, you could have a four-player midfield of of Scott, uh, Quinn, Grosso, and Fleming, which would look very intriguing with Fleming playing that Chris, uh, that Sinclair role. So I'll just throw that out there as something that Canada might try, say, Sinc- when Sinclair is, you know, starting to, to, to get on her last legs and say, okay, maybe I'm more of a super sub. That is something worth considering. But anyways, offensively, Again, there were a few, I guess, concerns. Again, when you're playing so narrow, uh, you have to get width. And I think that was a lot of onus was on the fullbacks to provide that width. I think Ashley Lawrence did a phenomenal job, as she always does. I think she's one of Canada's most underrated players for a reason. I think on the other side, Alicia Chapman, she did a good job when she could, but also, you know, with her age and just how she is more defensive, uh, you could certainly see that Canada offensively, they seem to be better in games where they started Jade Riviere, but... When you know you needed to start Chapman in those games, uh, the 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 big games, just she offers so much defensively. So I do think width wise, Canada needs to find a way to get more width going forward. Be it okay, do you play Ashley Lawrence? You know, you know, do you pass the torch to Carl and Riviere, just coach them up so they're more defensively responsible, and then run with that, or do you stick with Chapman and Lawrence for now? Good questions to have. I think the midfield did a phenomenal job in terms of transitioning the ball. Uh, I think, again, Quinn and Fleming in particular are very good passers of the ball, and Canada's very lucky to have them. And, heck, even you can add Grosso into that mix. I think I was very impressed with how progressive she is on the ball as well for for a young player. That isn't always something that's obvious, especially thrown into big games. Uh, So for me, the offense, the one thing that uh, I would like to see more is more of those Nichelle Prince runs where she starts in the middle and she just she's so good at being vertical. She just gets in behind. She gets there. And she had she had so many dangerous chances. I mean, she she had two assists from the first three games. She created several chances. That sort of verticality is, is what Canada needs. I think Janine Becky can provide it at times. I think her also being completely tired from a, a long season and uh, just all of the games she she played certainly looked like it took a toll on her. And I think someone like Deanne Rose 
did well to fill in for for her, especially in the final when she came on and won the penalty that, or she didn't win the penalty in the final. Sorry, she did win the penalty in the semifinal. But just she, whenever she'd come on, she provided that verticality. So I think Canada needs to find a way to 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 stretch the field more because when you're playing so narrow. The, the more you stretch the field, the more room for your midfielders, the more room they can play with the ball and play forward and get your fullback stretched out. So for me, offensively, I think there's pieces, you know, I think there's philosophies there that I'm liking, but it's going to be all about, okay, finding the right personnel for the, those roles, finding, you know, getting the instructions clear so that whoever is the front two stretches the field out and, and just let the midfield do their magic. I think the one thing, Canada, you could tell at times, whenever their midfield was played out of the game, they struggled. And as soon as they got their midfield going again, they came alive. And for me, I think that that's huge for, for Canada if they could uh, keep getting their midfield involved because they have some good strikers who can offer that verticality. Heck, Adriana Leone proved to be a, a good second-half sub option. Jordan Hoytema, we know Evelyn Vian can also so do that. So for, for me, Canada offensively going forward, I think Priestman has to begin and ends with the midfield and then from there trying to, to use the forwards around that. I think, yeah, just kind of adding on to your offensive thoughts there, you, you don't want to get away from the structure and, and solidarity that, you know, they basically that – that allowed them to win this tournament. But I think what you'd like going forwards is the ability to, when the right moment comes, switch on, as you called it, that verticality, to be dynamic going forward, to have your fullbacks push up, create some width. And then you can, you don't have to play like that the entire match. You don't have to be, you know, 2020 and 2019 San Jose Earthquakes, who, you know, every match was, was, five, four, and they're, you know, they're sending everyone forward and have no structure. Like you don't want that, but you, you would like to have those moments where you can just, you catch a team out of position, you catch a team out of structure and you're able in a, in a really well drilled and well coached way to capitalize on that. It just felt like at times during this tournament, they didn't, they didn't have that structure readiness to kind of all of a sudden switch and, you know, play long balls, get players in wide areas, not quite to the, to the level they would want. So I think that's kind of a big picture goal for the next couple of years is how do we, how do we counter with a little more intent, a little more organization and just create more high quality scoring chances. But kind of speaking of looking forward, I mean, I want to ask you, Alex, you know, it's, it's easy to just say, okay, well, this is a phenomenal result now. You know, Canada is a contender for any any tournament that they're in, and, and that would be true. But where does this kind of where does this put Canada in the the pecking order going forward? Are they the, are they the team to knock off? Are they you know a contender? Where does this reset kind of the the order of things on the women's side of the game? What do you think it's done to sort of you know change Canada's position because the it wasn't so long ago now that they were, you know, sort of a, a top 10 team in the women's game, but nothing more. But obviously they're going to be looked at differently after this tournament. Well, I think of, of course it changes the, the pecking order. I think it makes people realize, okay, you don't want to mess with Canada and what they have. Is there a frustrating team to play against? They're defensive, they're chippy, you know, they like to get at you. No one wants to play teams like that. You want to play teams where it's wide open, where it's, you know, you know, you're going to, even if there's a lot of talent, you're going to have, you know, it's it's going to be an easier game to play. And I think I think of that U.S. team a few years ago where they were both good and they were annoying to play against. You want to be good and annoying to play against. I think Canada, just with their style, with how they are, their cohesive unit, 
you don't want to play Canada because again, also another point now you've seen, okay, when they go down a goal, that doesn't phase them. You know, they, they don't mind playing through a bit of adversity. They've got good team togetherness. So, you know, you, you're not playing a team where you feel there's blood in the water. You, you know, if you get an early goal, you're, they're going to collapse and it's going to be game over. So this Canadian team certainly will have a, a, a bigger reputation. I mean, they're still a top 10 team. I think with the Olympic results, winning the, those games with the multiplier, I think they might actually crawl up into the top five in the world rankings. So that's going to be certainly uh, quite impressive for them to, to have that in their, their back pocket. So I, yeah, I think teams aren't, aren't going to want to play Canada going forward. And I think that's, that's a good thing for them, but they also have to be recognized, you know, recognize that they're going to have a target on their backs. Now people are going to be like, okay, this Canadian team's got good players. They're well coached. Now we're going to have to bring our tactical best, our physical best, our best players. And, it's kind of going to, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that challenge of being the team to beat. Because obviously, you know, when, when you win a major tournament until the next one, you are the team to beat. That's just how it works. And certainly at the next Olympics, they'll be the team to beat. But the World Cup's a different beast. One thing that Canada needs to work on is, and then to be fair, they did it a few times this tournament, I guess, is to beat more European teams. Because those are the standard bearers in the women's football right now. I think of the last World Cup where I think of all the final eight teams, seven of them were from uh, were from Europe. And obviously the other one was the eventual winners in world number one, the U.S. Europe is, you know, killing the game. But in the Olympics, they're only allowed three teams because of how small the tournament is. At the World Cup, they have 12, 13 teams. So I think for Canada, the World Cup's going to be a massive test because there's going to be all those very good European teams that missed out, like a France, a Germany. It's wild to think those are two teams in the top 10 who didn't make the Olympics just based on the format. So for, for Canada, I think it's absolutely, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this pressure at the World Cup where there's going to be so much, it's just going to be such a deeper field of play versus the Olympics. Yeah, I guess that's just my my overall hesitation. As much as it's an absolutely amazing moment for Canada and so well deserved, but I am a little cautious of you know the people that are dropping into women's soccer for for major tournaments only and for you know elimination games only to expect now that oh well Canada's the top team in the world and if they they fall anywhere short of you know winning the the women's World Cup that that's a failure because I think there's still improvements to be made that's a that's a tough tournament to try to win and i think there's a lot of good european sides that can can give them a run for their money if not beat them you know especially the way this tournament went how tight the margins were so i think that's just interesting to track you know where does the truth probably lies somewhere in between where they're they're certainly not as lowly ranked a squad as they were a couple of years ago you know are they the top team in the world also probably not it's you know they're going to be around that top five and I, I think that's what we can expect going forwards and maybe especially as you know youngsters like Grosso and Hoidema and you know even just people like Vian who are you know um or not Vian pardon me I think I got the wrong player there um just the, all the youngsters that are gaining more experience. I mean, heck, Jesse Jesse Fleming's still young. It se- she it was the fourth ins- youngest player on the Canadian team, it believe it or not, based absolutely on absolutely insane. But, like, there's, there's these are players with room for growth still, right? So I don't want to say that, oh, this is as good as, you know, Canada's women's national team is going to be, and they're not going to improve. But I just think it's important to keep in mind at the same time, you know, this is a this is a long process, and nothing's guaranteed for the next couple of years. Because I can just I can just sense that that might be something that they're going to have to deal with, especially from the media that just kind of drops in from time to time. No, I think for sure. I think 
what they learned is under Priestman with this roster, they can beat anyone. I think we've seen that from them. I'd trust them. If you, if you can go out and beat Sweden, which based on how just overall talented, athletic their roster was, if you can beat the U.S., you can beat anyone. So I don't, I don't, I don't think Canada can doubt that they can go compete at the World Cup, but it's just worth noting that there are it's going to be a, a dogfight at the at the World Cup compared to the Olympics, where the Olympics, there is just 12 teams. And, you know, maybe beyond the just the Netherlands, the U.S., Sweden, Brazil, Japan, uh, Great Britain, it was really, you know, it's not the same as the World Cup where you in a, in a given tournament, for all you know, you could have to go through five, six top 10 sides just to, to win. So for Canada, I guess it is important to recognize that. And I guess almost on a similar note worth noting that all those leagues have very strong all those countries sorry have strong domestic leagues which canada doesn't have they, their talent isn't you know they're not necessarily mining as much talent as they could just based on the fact that opportunities are so limited and i think that's very true in the fact that some of these some of these countries their player pool is 50 60 players deep for canada if you're going to make a, you know, their, their pool right now, there's arguably really just 30 players who, who, who are, you know, on the national team radar. I guess you could extend it, but there's really 30 players, I'd say, who could be considered to be in or out this national team. It's not like the U.S. where they could send three A teams to the World Cup and probably all have all of them do decent. They, you know, there's tougher choices to make. This Canadian team, relative to other top nations, the pool is small just because they don't have national leagues. They're not necessarily churning out the players as they will. And I think this has opened up a very good conversation of, okay, should Canada build a, a women's league? Yeah, the answer, first of all, is yes. As of 20 years ago, I don't know what's waited so long, but it really shows that in terms of this arms race, they're also competing against some very, very aggressive teams that are building at rapid paces. So it's, it's going to be interesting how Canada, now that they have this bit of momentum, they have a gold medal, that they, how they build off of this. Because the chatter after this victory has been very interesting in that regard. Hello everyone, Alex from The Third Sub here. Hope you're enjoying this episode 107 of The Third Sub Podcast. I just want to stop by to say a quick word from our partners over at Macy Sports. Shout out to Macy Sports, who of course partners with the show and just completed a very fantastic boots giveaway so congrats once again to the winner of that giveaway and if you did not win fear not more are on the way we've got lots planned but make sure in the meantime to check out macy sports in north van located near the second narrows bridge if you mention that you're a third sub listener you do get a little discount which is great because with the soccer season right around the corner they've got all the new kits they've got all the new boots new balls everything you name it. So if you need any new gear for the new season, obviously a long summer away from action, they're the place to go. But on that note, we'll get right back into the show. Yeah, there's been a bit of a, a groundswell, you know, and rightfully so in terms of pushing for, you know, especially in some of the some of the major soccer markets that, you know, it's time for for women's teams. And then obviously that that creates the push for a women's league as well. Uh, I'm interested for your perspective, Alex. I mean, we've seen, we've seen, you know, the first men's properly Canadian domestic league come in in the CPL and they've, they've certainly had their challenges so far. I think, you know, there's individual teams doing very well, but from a, from a league perspective, it's, it's been a challenge. So what structure, I mean, I haven't really put a ton of thought into this yet, but we can kind of, we can kind of, you know, 
brainstorm on the spot a little bit here. What kind of format, what kind of structure would you want to see for a women's league in Canada? And I guess most importantly, what would be a conducive environment to, you know, national team and overall success of Canadian women? I mean, yeah, you have to go for a, a national team league, a league, sorry. I'm thinking maybe eight teams across the country to start kind of similar size to the Canadian men's premier league, uh, obviously was a different project. I think personally, it's really unfortunate they couldn't have made a, you know, a, a concurrent men's and, and women's premier league at the same time. You know, that could have been a, that's a very missed opportunity. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to ask. Is it at this point, would it be a more attractive option to be in, in line with something like the Canadian premier league, or do you think it would be better for, you know, a, a separate league to be created? Like what are the, what are the benefits and drawbacks to either partnering with someone like the CPL or, you know, creating your own independent venture? Well, really just to go through all the opportunities, it, it takes investors. That's the big number yeah. one. Cause I don't think interest is a problem. I mean, for example, 5 million people, and there is a whole debate about this and I could certainly debate, but 5 million people tuned into the, 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 the gold medal game at times ranging from five to 10 AM on a, Friday morning, which, you know, work hours, this or that interest is in the country. Yes. It's a gold medal game. Interest is always going to be higher, but you can't tell me any of those 5 million people who watched the game aren't going to be like, Oh, I'm refused to watch women's soccer after this. This is that was, I'm just watching it. Cause it was a gold medal. No, if they've watched, if they turn on the TV and watch that game, you could easily convince them to come go watch uh, you know, a, a women's pro team in their local town in Saskatchewan or in, in, in British Columbia or in in, in, the, in Nova Scotia. So I think, first of all, interest is there. I think there's no doubt there's a lot of kids around the country playing soccer, both boys and girls, would love to just have any local team to go to go watch and to watch their heroes who know who your Christine Sinclairs, you know, you know who your Sophie Schmitz are, your, your Jesse Flemings from obviously the newer generation, your Kadisha Buchanan's. So again, interest isn't the issue. For me, the one discussion is finances. So first of all, if the finances really aren't there for a women's league, you would take an NWSL team to start. But I do, I think if you can avoid that kind of path where you end up with three Canadian MLS teams kind of in limbo land and you go straight for the women's league, I think the better option is the women's league. So I'll preface that saying that while I believe the NWSL is an option if needed, I think you should focus your attention on the on a women's league. But I just will say it's easier to have one investor step up for a one team versus a whole league. But it's a good question because I think the nice thing about the CPL is what do you have? You have eight markets. You have eight owners who have already show, shown a willingness to spend on soccer. So it's not, you know, it's not as if they they they, they haven't had this interest. You've got an already established structure that could be a good place to start being okay. Well, if you want to be a part of this league, you, you got to invest in both teams. And I think there, there's been discussions, I think in South America, for example, in Argentina, they were having massive issues with their women's league. And then they made it that if you want to support the men's teams, you have to support the women's teams because it's all one club at the end of the day. And they really started to, they have this huge moment of reckoning where fans there are like, yeah, well, actually that's a good point. Why do I just support our men's team and not our women's team? It's all the, you know, it's all football at the end of the day. And they've had this huge spurt of growth. They've got more players than ever playing. They've got a lot of things like that. Well, you could do something similar with the CPL where, okay, you have 
an Atletico Ottawa men's and women's team. You have a York United men's and women's team. And you've got markets, you've got structures, you've got fans, you build from there, you expand. But uh, if not, I think it's going to be interesting to see where where investors come from. Because I think investors should step up. I don't think it should be a problem, but it's going to be interesting to see, okay, if you're starting a whole eight-team project, for example, using that eight-team line, or you could even do six teams, that's a reasonable number okay, where are the investors going to come from? What is the structure going to look like? So I think all three options are viable, but I think of the three, the nice thing about combining with the CPL is that the infrastructure is the most readily available of the three. And I guess if you're ranking them, you got infrastructure in the CPL model, you've got the ease of access in the NWSL model. And then with the, the, the whole new league, you've got the imagination of creating something new and creating something. So I guess there's pros and cons to, to all of them. So the one thing I'm really thinking about, and this seems pertinent because it has definitely affected both the Canadian Premier League and the Canadian national teams recently, is media coverage and media rights. Because I, I think that's a big one. And I think you you shouted out, what was it, like four four 4.5 million people that watched the, the Gold 4.3 on TV and then a further 800K on streaming or 700K on streaming. So. Right. So, you know, part of that for me is, okay, what's, what's a big factor in that? The fact that people can drop in for free, free of charge, you know, there's no, there's no barrier for entry. And, and that's even, we've seen this throughout the Olympics, you know, as much as streaming is, is prevalent and, and, and for, you know, very established brands like, uh, Say, you know, you're, you're living in Canada, things like the NFL, things like the Premier League, those are put behind a paywall, but that's also the kind of established content that people are, you know, are going to go out seek exclusively. I just think that I would hope that this women's league would get the opportunity. I understand that that's not always compatible with finances because sometimes the media deals a big part of the finances, but I think that visibility accessibility the the drop-in factor i think could be massive in terms of greater you know media visibility i think as you said in terms of you have a local team in saskatchewan you're hosting matches on on weekends on friday nights people are going to show up people are going to support that because i think it works whether it's men's or women's at the grassroots level i mean heck we we went to that U23 match for the Vancouver Whitecaps. There were there were 500 people there, and it was it was barely announced or publicized, and people found out about it because they care about you know developmental and grassroots soccer. There's a good community there. I just think in terms of growth, in terms of kind of you know creating a wider visibility, the the whole media rights thing is is important, and I I would really hope that for the women, if they create a league here in Canada, that they're they're able to give it a platform that's that's widely visible and doesn't have you know barriers for entry or or reasons for people not to tune in i guess is what i'm saying yeah but i know that's i know that's challenging it's easier said than done obviously well the nice thing about that cpl mention is that they have a, a platform a one a one soccer and yes you could have the whole debate of digital streaming platforms yada 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 First of all, one soccer would, and they said they were, so hopefully we're still waiting. They want to have a TV channel. That's a game changer because people will pay for sports channels if there's to, all of the. To me, that would be a an absolute game changer because my experience over the last couple of years is that I, I just can't fully rely on one soccer 
day in day out to provide coverage I don't have to worry I don't have to worry about being behind I don't have to worry about my stream dropping especially you know Alex for people like us that that cover this stuff and are trying to tweet during matches like having that kind of coverage you don't have to worry about is massive and I, again it's just those, those little things that if people are on the fence maybe they go the other way and, and you want to bring those people in yeah no and I think TV is a huge game changer whether or not people admit it but I think you know the the whole tv debate as long as there's a chance to watch it people will pay tsn's a niche sporting service sports now you have to pay for T tsn and sports and i mean i had to pay to just get those all those channels but i get it because i like to watch sports and i think that's the thing with, with one soccer when it's on tv people will pay for it if it's a, a good service and they will you know invest in it so i think yeah it's good that it's a good point that they would need any sort of league or I guess even team really, because the NWSL is, isn't available on TV in Canada. It used to be on TSN, but now it's just on Twitch, which again, it's great. It's free for, for people like, you know, you and me who like to watch the games. It's nice to have to, you know, not jump through many hoops and click, but for some people just as soon as it's off TV, it's too many hoops for, for them to, to jump through. So I think getting games, be it whichever model they choose, because if the NWSL would come to Canada, they would need to get it on TV. That's a, a must. That's not even a, a question. They're not going to, you know, if, if they were in Canada, they would be on TV. So I think it's, that would be a huge thing to get that visibility, to give it that. And because and you know what, TV also helps financing the league because that involves TV rights that involves advertising dollars that invite, you know, involves people paying their, their, their money to, to, to subscribe and, and all that. And I think, that would be huge because, again, when you're starting a league, you're looking for, you know, revenue streams. Obviously, when you're in a stadium, there's advertising money, there's ticket money. Because I think the important thing, too, is that this league is sustainable, but also that you're playing players to, to, to play in the league. So that some of you, your top players, you want it that if you have a team in, uh, say, Vancouver, because obviously it's a hotbed of women's soccer here. The Whitecaps back in the day used to do really well in terms of selling out seats and whatnot. Imagine if you had a Christine Sinclair or a Julia Gross or a Jordan Hoytema playing on your team because you have competitive salaries, you have a solid league structure. Imagine if some, you know, you go over to Ontario, some of the many Ontario players. Imagine if you have some of those Ontario born players, say like a, you know, like a Deanne Rose say, because obviously someone like an Ashley Lawrence, Kenesha Buchanan, they're playing at a top European club. You're never going to stop them, but imagine, players who are kind of playing in these lower European teams or you're playing in the NWSL instead they get to choose to play at home and bring that visibility because there's a competitive salary there's a competitive league most you know both of those things are very important so I guess it's going to be interesting what the structure is I'm not going to pretend like I have a crystal ball and know what the perfect one is but I just look around okay if you have to go for an NWSL team go for it. There are risks with that. I think if you create your own league, go for it. But there's also, again, risks with that. You can hack if you can partner with the CPL and, and work out something. There's all, there are also risks with that. But I think the, the benefit just outweighs it. I think, first of all, the interest in the sport is way too high to ignore this demand. There's too many kids playing soccer right now who deserve a pathway like this. Canada's too good of a soccer nation now to not have these sorts of opportunities. It's not like Canada's a, you know, a country that's sitting 60th in the world rankings or barely making it to Olympics or World Cups. This is a team that just won an Olympic gold medal. It's certainly conversations that need to be had. And I think business people who are sitting out there with money and if they don't see this as a profitable avenue, but you know, you can only wonder 
almost at a certain sense, what is their, their, their savviness for, for, for business. So it has to be a discussion that, that has to be done soon. Yeah. I, I don't want to play pessimist union perspective here because no, obviously sure. I, we, we both want the same thing, which is a successful Canadian women's league that helps produce players to, you know, to have this be one of many gold medals for Canada at the Olympics, right. On the women's side, that's, that's gotta be the goal. I think that's what a lot of people want, but my concern has just been everything we've seen recently with the CPL players union, um, that's a the big stories, one. the stories we've heard about the kind of salaries or lack thereof that a lot of players are getting in the CPL, just all these, all these issues that continue to crop up. And it just, it makes me concerned because if they're having that kind of struggle on the men's side, it's a it's an ugly reality and it shouldn't be the case but you have to imagine that at least in terms of getting it off the ground those struggles are going to be exactly the same if not greater for the women that's just the way a lot of you know a lot of people that are going to have the money to invest view it even if that shouldn't be the case and so that's my concern i think if the if the cpl was just you know off to the races and and players were getting paid well there weren't any labor issues you know and and everything was smooth sailing, I'd be a lot more bullish on the possibility to just dive into a WCPL and get it off the ground and running. But I think until we see, while we're seeing the CPL struggle or you know have challenges, either a women's league needs to look to go in a different direction and, and structure themselves uniquely, or you know maybe just kind of consider where they'd fit into that space and you know how can they involve how can they avoid, pardon me, some of those same pitfalls? Because I, I just, yeah, it's, there's the interest, there's the quality of players, but connecting those things and making it really work is a, is a different matter entirely. And I think we've, we've seen that already on the men's side of the game. So that's, that's my cautionary tale, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, the league doesn't have to right off the bat be a competitor to the NWSL or the, you know, super league over in England, obviously where a lot of talented players are. You could also start small. Okay, if your salaries are a little lower, but it offers an opportunity for young Canadians, say like, say Julia Gross, who was 17, 18, before she goes to college, she wants to test herself. Okay, it offers a chance for a 16, 17-year-old Julia Grosso, where, you know, you look at someone, a Jade Riviere, who's in college right now, all these players to play pro before making a move to Europe, making a move to college. That also could be a, a place to start just to, to even you know again as nice as my uh, my dream of having canadian stars national team players play in canada that doesn't have to be necessarily something that's happening right from the get-go you could also start with okay let's start with a little more of a developmental eye you're starting with some younger players some you know and then to be fair that's kind of what a niche the cpl has carved out and it, you know it's it certainly given opportunities to some good youngsters i think again the salaries is a, is a huge question that needs to be answered because you don't want players you know, you want your players to be able to live comfortably and not have to scrape by just by playing soccer because that's going to, you know, close the doors for so many players already, right? Because, you know, yeah. I mean, we've we've seen 21, 22-year-olds retire from professional football from the season. Like, we don't want that. I, I, I think that's a warning sign, yeah. We don't want that. So it's, it's certainly going to be something to, to consider in the, in the long term. But uh, I guess kind of on that note, as we kind of empty the notebook here from the the women's tournament, I suppose, uh, you know, 
I guess I'll throw it over to you, Sam, because we certainly have a few things to look forward to, such as the World Cup, Victory Tour, et cetera, et cetera. Were there anything we want to dive into from the tournament itself that we missed before we move on to that? Because it was a good discussion on the league and what, what could be forward. And hopefully these discussions are ongoing with people with the money, with the ideas to make this happen. But uh, returning to the Olympics, any last notes before we look ahead for the women's national team? Nothing really major other than something I guess we didn't talk about because we were more focused on the, the ramifications of the match itself. But just what an emotional roller coaster that penalty shootout was. Uh, you know, to, to face elimination, to survive it, to, to go down several times where it seems like the women were, you know, staring down the barrel of inevitable defeat and then to, to claw back into it to, you know, to get a save, to get a miss. That was just it was uh, a harrowing shootout to say the least. One of the one of the more tense um, affairs I'd I'd seen in a while, and you know I don't I don't really think any of the penalties were very well taken in the, in in the final there, but the the pressure that those players were under was was obvious, and you you could see it in in their posture and their body language, and so you know much like the Euro finals, I think that was a it was a memorable penalty shootout. Sometimes for good reasons. Sometimes, you know, if you're if you're a Sweden fan for some for some less uh, enviable reasons. But it was just that was an incredible experience that to me added a lot of a lot of value. And overall, I think for the Canadian women, in, in some ways, if they'd cruise to if they hadn't beat the U.S., if they'd you know cruise two nil in elimination matches it would have almost taken something away. The way a lot of these matches came down to very fine margins, came down to moments of facing defeat straight in the face, I think that adds a lot to the the aura and mystique behind it. And it's certainly part of what will make it very memorable for me. Yeah, certainly. I, I hope uh, for, for any of those out there who watch this Canadian team and have heart problems, I certainly feel for you because they're not exactly friendly on the on the heart at times with how they just they, they certainly love the drama going down or you know etc and i just think the whole journey really was such a roller coaster journey and it's certainly going to be one to look back on i think you start with the first game against japan it starts out so well you're against the host you go up one nil in, inside five minutes christine sinclair scores the first goal her 187th you know everyone's happy for that and then you're cruising all game and then you give up a late goal and you, and you tie and you feel like, okay, that was a waste. You know, we, you showed that you can compete for with Japan, a team that has tormented you in the past for 85 minutes just to throw it away. Okay. You're, you're kind of, you know, a bit disgruntled. You go to Chile, a must win game. You go up to no, you look great. And then you, you, you give away a penalty. They hit the crossbar. You win two one. Yes. You get your three points, but you feel like, oof, like, yes, Chile is a good team. They've got, you know, one of the best goal. They got, probably the best goalkeeper in the world. You're not going to be mad that you only won two, one, but you do feel like, okay, we made it a little harder on ourselves than you did. Then you should have, you go to the last game, GB, you have a chance to win the group. You go up one nil. Okay. It's a, it's a big surprise. Everyone's happy. And then to give away the last goal on an own goal. And you kind of fall apart after a strong start. Again, you get out of the group stages. It was just this weird feeling of, okay, yes, Canada, they're undefeated. They only allowed three goals. You know, they, they they did the job, but at the same time, you wonder, could they have more? And then by virtue of that group stage, they set themselves up with a hard knockout pass where you have to play 
Brazil, the winner of the U.S. Netherlands, which either way was going to be a bloodbath for Canada, and then you play Sweden in the final, you wonder, okay, what is this team capable of? And then they go to Brazil. You you know, a Brazilian team, that the last time you played them, they beat you 2-0. The time before that, you drew 2-2. The time before that, they beat you 4-0. So clearly you've had your 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 fair share of demons against Brazil. And obviously they had the nil-nil as well. I did forget the nil-nil. But basically in the last four games, you hadn't beat them. You go, you defend very tightly for 90 minutes. You go to penalties, which are obviously very stressful. Christine Sinclair misses her first penalty. Everyone, the one player you think is is safe to to to, to score it, but then you, 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 Stephanie Labe saves the day. You you go to to to, to the U.S. game, the team that is your bogey team. You haven't beat in 20 years. Literally, there's some players like Julia Grosso who hadn't been on this planet for a, a time where Canada had beat the U.S. because that's how one-sided the rivalry had been. Then you 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 handle their pressure. You go, you, you know, you, you you get a late penalty, uh, you you score, you hold on despite some crossbars. It was just leading up to that final. You dealt with so much stress, so much up and down, so much moments of glory, glory followed by moments of disappointment, then glory. For me, that final, I guess, kind of encompassed the whole tournament for Canada up to that point. Just, okay, you go down in the final, 1-0. First time all tournament, you're trailing, but then you fight back, and then you go to penalties, and you you miss three penalties in a row at a crucial venture, but then Sweden misses three in a row thanks to some big saves, and then Deanne Rose, and then Julian Grosso clutch up. I think, yeah, just looking at this tournament, what a roller coaster of, of emotions it was for Canada. And I think for me, that's going to make it all the more memorable because there was times it felt like they were going to barely get out of their group. There's times where they felt like they weren't going to get back to the quarterfinals. And next thing you know, they had gold medals around their necks. And there's just something so thrilling about that tournament venture that it, it not only did Canada finally win, I think had they won by winning every game five nil, it would have been special because it's their first one. It's always special. But the fact that they fought tooth and nail and that, that just feels so fitting for this Canadian team. So it always feels like they're fighting tooth and nail. I think it was, fitting they beat the u.s fighting tooth and nail after they got screwed so over in the so-called london screw job back in in 2012 i just think it was so fitting that the canada won like this yeah i I couldn't say it say it better myself and i think that's probably a a pretty good spot to to complete our women's national team discussion alex you got any any final thoughts here other than yeah i mean shout out to shout out to that match in 2012 and that was uh i think a pretty good feeling for a lot of canadians to uh you know not not that you wish ill on any team but if there's if there's one team you maybe harbor a bit of discontent with and uh and a bit of you know there's a little extra spice in it it's that u.s women's national team so i don't know if it would have been exactly the same if they hadn't you know as much as the Dutch would have been a great team to beat and, and, and a, you know, a very worthy competitor. I think part of me was very happy to see the U S get through and to have a repeat of that matchup from 2012. Oh, 100%. It was very sweet, but I guess the last two notes, Canada's doing a victory tour, which is much deserved. I'm, I mean, my, I'll throw it to you, Sam, if you have any ideas for you, victory tour, you have three games say, we'll just, we'll say three games, but, uh, because I guess I guess we'll see what the schedule is looking like. I can double check to see what the if it's a triple match window or if it's a double match window. Let's say you had three games for Canada and you have to celebrate a victory tour. Where are you going with it, and how should Canada go about this? So this is this is matches they'll host it at home. Correct? Friendly matches. They got the gold medals. It's kind of just a party of sorts to celebrate this honor. 
Hmm, interesting. And I guess it depends which which countries are available, which countries would want to come to Canada to do that. Yeah. Do we know, when, when is the match window? Uh, I'm just going to confirm uh, now with like the, the, the actual windows, but just European okay. teams are out because they're in World Cup qualifiers and European qualifiers. Yeah. But uh, I'm just going to, we'll just assume that three teams against, say, you know knowing canada just for fun they play brazil japan and like the u.s because those three teams mean so much to them theoretically just if you had three games where would you play them on a victory tour this is more just well, for fun I, this is again what i'm interested what i'm interested about though is like do you do you want to play the u.s or you know you're looking for games that are that are kind of a little more casual because i don't i think no matter what the circumstances against the u.s that game's going to have some some seriousness and some venom behind it right Actually, like actually, okay, I, I, I'm sorry. I've gotten back to you on the, this one a little earlier. So from the 13th of September to 21st September, it's a type one window. So it's a double match window. Um, so, But also there appears to be a type three window, which could be a quadruple match window for confederation qualification. Okay, no. So it's just a two game window. I, it's not a type one window, but we'll assume three games just yeah. for the sake of discussion because they could also extend I mean, the tour to October. I think the two, the, the obvious ones in terms of travel and in terms of competitiveness are the U.S. and Brazil, right? Because that's not a not a gargantuan travel ask. Teams with a lot of history, uh, countries that would draw, I think, supporters and interest from all sides. So those are the obvious ones. I mean, maybe shout out to a Chile. That's someone someone you could see as well. But yeah, with, with the Europeans out, I, I don't know if Japan's making the trip. They certainly could, but... Uh, those are the two that seem really obvious to me. Uh, Alex, I don't know. What what do you think? I'm thinking if I had to pick a team, I think you go for maybe even like a Mexico and Jamaica, two local CONCACAF teams, team games you can kind of win and keep a good. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking about. Like, okay, you, you, you know, Brazil and the U S in terms of just getting people interested makes a lot of sense, but you know, you also don't want to, don't want to catch a three nil, in your celebration tour matches, which is which is certainly possible, although this you know Canada team's got a lot going for it. So that that is a question that you know Bev Priestman would have to ask herself. Yeah, but uh, I certainly think as for the cities, I think Vancouver and Toronto have to be locks. Yeah. I think you 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 know it's easiest to travel to both from if you're in the west or if you're in the east. I think it would be fitting. I think because Vancouver has meant so much to many of them. I think Priestman. Uh, it's kind of the unofficial home of the women's game, I feel like. Yeah, certainly if BMO is the home of the men's game, it feels like BC Place, we've hosted some of the biggest women's games. We hosted the Women's World Cup Final, which is crazy to think that Vancouver hosted a World Cup Final. It's still always wild to me that, yeah, I think it certainly would be fitting to have a game at BC Place at BMO. I'm curious to see if they say they do a third game on the Victory Tour, which would be smart just to grow the game. Where would they pick it? Do you go to a... You know, do you go to a, try to go to a Montreal and try to break into the the French market, which is not, notoriously, you know, they've got some marketable French players on Canada, like Vanessa Gilles, Evelyn Vien, Gabrielle Carl, uh, two of which are from Quebec, and one from obviously Gilles from Ottawa, which is you know a stone throw away from from Quebec. Or do you go for the Prairies, try to drum up interest there by going to an Edmonton, who've hosted some big games? To heck, a Winnipeg is a team that always, a city that always wants national more national team games 
I'm curious to see, but I think, yeah, victory tour. I think you do still want one strong opponent. Just like imagine a game against the U S at BC place. I feel like that would be instantly a 40 K plus 50 K plus. I think it honestly could be a sellout in the right circumstances in the right time with the proximity to the border. And then maybe at BMO you go for a Jamaica or Mexico. I don't know, but I certainly think this, they have to capitalize on this victory tour because Canadians haven't been able to see this women's national team in person for so long. And now that they're gold medalists, this could be huge for getting kids out, getting people out who were, you know, heard about this team and they hadn't really seen them before, but really raised visibility. So I'm really curious to see how they go about this victory tour that they've talked about. It's going to happen and it's going to be interesting to see what their plan is. Certainly you want to, you want to capitalize on the positivity and then turn that into the direct connection with supporters and spectators. Cause there's, there's nothing like that ability to watch players in person to feel a little more involved in what's going on. And that, that is the one downside of this Olympic experience is that there, there weren't those supporters in attendance. There wasn't that, that buzz around it you would get from a full stadium. This is obviously what we've been dealing with for what feels like a very long time now. So the opportunity to kind of turn that corner to get some of that positivity with people, you know, in the streets, in the stands, supporting the women would be, would be phenomenal. And if, if we get, some of those scenarios we talked about, I'll, I'll be very much looking forward to it. No, I agree wholeheartedly. I think, again, it's it's important to to capitalize on that opportunity and get interest. But uh, I guess last thing before we, you know, move on uh, from the, the women's chatter again, it's a phenomenal summer and it's, it still feels wild to think uh, Canada's even won this tournament. But uh, again, looking forward, this is just the start. As we mentioned at the beginning of the year, Priestman was hired with the with this tournament on in mind. This, the Olympics was for her just a bonus. I think it was just the fact she went out and went and made it even more amazing. But the 23 World Cup, it's two years away exactly now. It just feels wild to think it snuck up on us and punched you in the face here. It's going to be held in Australia, New Zealand. going to be a phenomenal uh, tournament. The World Cup always is a, a phenomenal tournament. It's a big, big event. It's just something about it, just the prestige of the World Cup. For example, had you win the you know the World Cup versus the Olympics, you just you get a star above your kit, which is already just on its own a very symbolic thing that's nice to have and say something you missed by winning an Olympic gold medal versus uh, you know something else. So you've got thirty two teams. It's going to be a dogfight. Canada in twenty twenty two next summer will will go through qualifiers. It'll be good to drive up, drum up interest for for those qualifiers because, you know, for just for an example, next year's women's qualifiers for women's uh, Olympic and a World Cup, they do a tournament instead of say drawn out qualifiers. Which, to be fair, is something I'd like to see them change. I'd like them to uh, expand to more of a normal qualification process, so you're playing more competitive games instead of the the friendly heavy schedule, but. A, it's worth noting that there's no host announced for that tournament. So if Canada, they should consider maybe getting, a, you know, hosting that tournament like the U.S. usually typically does, because that could be a way to drum up more interest in this national team, especially them playing competitive games with spots in the World Cup on the line. And then as for the World Cup itself, just we have to also just talk about how young this Canadian team is and how much of a, an asset that could be for for the, the this woman's team going forward how this isn't just an aging roster for example in the starting lineup of the final 
the only three players over 30 were Steph LeBay, who's retiring supposedly after these Olympics. So that will change. You got Desiree Scott and you got Christine Sinclair. Everyone else was either under the 20, under the age of 26, sorry, or younger. And I just think it's, it's important that this Canadian team is so young and that they have a very good chance at competing in 23, because if you look at their roster now, just going down the age list here, sorry, you got, you know, Kadisha Buchanan is going to be 27. You got, uh, you, you, Quinn's going to be 28. Deanne Rose is going to be 24. Julia Grosser is going to be 22. Jade Revere is going to be 22. Just looking at the list, Canada can. I, I was going to say, I think you can make a, a substantial case that really 2023 would be more of a prime age for this roster than 2021 was, which is which is certainly encouraging. Obviously, you, you have to go do the business and you have to, I think, improve from this Olympic tournament in order to you know, consider yourself a, a serious contender for the 2023 World Cup. But I think with Priestman continuing to build, with these young players coming up with, you know, even even the the 25-year-olds now being 27 with those major matches under their belt, that's going to make a huge difference. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the potential for this team. You know, you, you asked in the notes here, can they can this roster compete for the World Cup in 2023? And the answer is absolutely yes. I think there's, you know, there's little tweaks. There's little things you'd like to see worked on and improved to, you know, compete against some of those European teams and be able to win in multiple ways. But uh, I'm, I'm very excited about what the next couple of years has in store and, you know, hopefully kick it off with a couple of those those victory tour wins like we talked about. Yeah, exactly. Just Just to say... Things are looking up for this women's national team. All that to say, again, going through Ashley Lawrence, 28. It's going to be this Canadian team has so much to look forward to. And I think it's going to be important. They capitalize this momentum for the better with the pro league. They capitalize for this momentum just for more people following the national team when they play. It's one thing for everyone. to. They've they've got their own separate social account now, which is which is good. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of good things happening with this women's national team. So it's just important, again, that. uh, the interest continues on. Yeah, no. So, so all this to to say, there's a lot going on. That's that's you know for this this national team going forward. They're still a young group. They've got young players. They, they've got this momentum of being the champions, being the gold medalist, and they've got just a prime of players that are just set for good things. You look at their roster. They've done a good well, a good job of transitioning under Bev Priestman and from this older to a younger roster. Bev Priestman is also a young coach with, with bright things ahead in her future. Lots to like for this uh, this Canadian women's national team. But uh, before we, we go, I mean, that wraps up another episode of the third sub podcast, episode 107 to, to be exact. You can find me on Twitter at Alex Gallerusic at btsfancy.com. And was a pleasure to chat a golden episode of the women, you know, Canada soccer, Canada women's national team chatter. But uh, I'll throw it over to you, Sam, to, to wrap up the show. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And I, I think we, we kind of made the decision, you know, initially you're thinking about doing all the Canada stuff together, but the, the women really deserve their own discussion, their own their own moment in the third sub spotlight so to speak so i'm glad we were able to have such a such a wide-ranging discussion on the women's game and uh we're going to be back to kind of break down everything that happened at the gold cup on the men's side what it means for you know world cup qualifying the octo going forward in the fall and 
talk about individual players. Alex has got some exclusive audio as well with a with a Whitecaps player who was on the the men's national team. So stay tuned for that. And as always, you know you can check out our live shows related to Vancouver Whitecaps stuff, related to both Canadian men's and women's matches when those are back up again. So you can check those out. You can find me as always at Samuel underscore Robo on Twitter at 86forever.com for written stuff, 86forever, YouTube for our live shows. Thanks everyone so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed not only this episode, but uh, the women's gold medal performance. Uh, and thank you for supporting the women's game. And uh, yeah, we'll be back again soon.